his commentary on 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13, and what is said there about Christian suffering, Calvin speaks of the usefulness of the cross. This usefulness, as he sees it, has two parts. For one, the refining trial God makes of our faith, and second, our becoming partakers with Christ. Westminster Media presents Word and Spirit, a podcast study of the life and theology of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. I'm your host, Nate Shannon, and in this show, we'll hear about the intersection of theology and life and the changing of hearts and minds and how one life dedicated to exploring the truth can guide others down ancient paths to see our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, in Word and Spirit. By the early 1970s, Richard Gaffin Jr.'s reputation as an engaging lecturer was growing among students at Westminster Theological Seminary. While beyond the quiet campus in Glenside, Pennsylvania, Gaffin remained relatively unknown. But as he began to publish, Gaffin's knack for rigor and precision in exegesis and in interpretation of the biblical text started to make an impression. These early publications were accomplishing in print what Gaffin was delivering in the classroom, a cogent and compelling presentation of a reformed biblical theology unfamiliar to the American theological world. These days, it's easy to take for granted that almost any Christian in the United States is only a few keystrokes away from any extant theological text one might desire using a device that fits in your pocket. But until relatively recently, a theologian's reading was limited to the hard copies to which he had access. So unless you had the good fortune of easy access to one of the world's great theological libraries, there were comparatively few texts from which to learn theology, apologetics, or biblical studies. Translations, too, were far fewer. This meant that bodies of theological literature tended to remain isolated and scholarly communities insulated from developments elsewhere. So it was no small feat when Gaffin published a review of Hermann Ritterboss's study of Paul, called Paul, an Outline of His Theology, in 1968. Ritterboss's book, written in Dutch, wasn't yet available in English, and it was a large, densely argued theological composition. But I think that's a testimony. Here is Guy Waters, professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. To his capability as a writer, uh, he, he really does model uh, Calvin's ideal of brevity and clarity. And he recognizes he's not the first person to have reflected on these matters. And he will yield the floor to those who have gone before. In his review, Gaffin examines Ritterboss's argument that Paul's primary concern was to interpret the history of redemption as it reached its climax in the death and resurrection of Christ. Since Paul's Christology was concerned with redemptive accomplishment, and since the resurrection of Christ ushered in the age to come, Ritterboss declared that Christology and eschatology were inseparable. 
Eschatology was commonly concerned with millennial views and with matters of the end times, and so it was usually considered the final topic in systematic theology. But if Ritterboss was right, this was wholly inadequate. Eschatology pervades the entirety of the gospel message. The gospel itself is, as Ritterboss understood Paul, eschatological. In the same review, Gaffin emphasized another theme that would become familiar to his readers, the already not yet redemptive historical context for Christian life today. Believers, Gaffin says, are already new creations and therefore experience resurrection life through faith union with Christ in the here and now. And yet, that new creation resurrection life is not yet fully manifest as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the outer self is wasting away while our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the inner man already experiences the resurrection of Christ by virtue of union, but the outer man still endures the trials of the not yet until Christ returns. So the basic and distinguishing interest of theology should be to explore and explain the meaning of the already and the not yet as these explain our present Christian experience and how they also direct our attention and our hope to the coming of Jesus Christ. Salvation in that sense is not historical only because it happens in a historical moment. Salvation is historical because history itself is driven by the redemptive work of God and Christian experience takes its meaning from that work and from the faithfulness of our Savior. In other words, Gaffin saw tremendous value in Ritterboss's approach to Paul. So what we in fact have in Gaffin's review is the first appearance in print of the contours of a redemptive historical approach that Gaffin would continue to develop and refine over the course of the decades to come. The world of academic theology of the 1960s and 70s was a volatile one. Theology is, after all, the study of God's Word. So any deviation from orthodoxy or from the generally accepted beliefs of the church can threaten the peace of the church. And the business of sorting through theological disagreement can come at great personal and professional cost to those involved. Gaffin witnessed this firsthand in the debates over the teaching of his friend and colleague at Westminster, Norman Shepard. In 1966, Westminster's famed systematician and Romans commentator, John Murray, retired and returned to his native Scotland. Then Gaffin's father-in-law, E.J. Young, who had taught New Testament at Westminster since 1936, passed away suddenly in 1968. Cornelius Van Til retired in 1972, and Paul Woolley, the last remaining member of the founding faculty, retired in 1977. Gaffin would become full professor of New Testament in 1979. Half a century had passed since J. Gresham Machen had left Princeton Seminary to found Westminster. And now, under the leadership of the seminary's first president, Ed Clowney, Westminster would face a test of its theological and institutional character. 
One of the issues in the 1970s was easy believism. Here again is Danny Ollinger. And one of the professors at Westminster Seminary, Norman Shepherd, who at that time was an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, really wanted to take a stand against easy believism. And so he had an interpretation of certain text that was stretching the boundaries of what Reformed Orthodoxy had traditionally held. Norman Shepard had raised concerns over common articulations of nothing less than the doctrine of justification, particularly with regard to the nature of faith and the role of obedience. In the ensuing debates at Westminster and in the OPC, where both Gaffin and Shepard were serving at the time, Gaffin was initially Shepard's most visible supporter. He sympathized with Shepard's emphasis upon Galatians 5.6 and on the importance of the fact that the faith through which the sinner is justified is not an idle faith, but a working faith. Gaffin believed that the nature of saving faith was at issue, not the doctrine of justification itself. And Gaffin recognized that works could not be relevant for a truly reformed doctrine of justification by God's free grace. The sinner is justified not for anything wrought or done within the sinner, nor because of anything done by the sinner, but only on account of Christ's righteousness, which is received by faith, even despite the sinner's unrighteousness. That gratuitous, even contradictory character of justification must be maintained. Recognizing the importance of clarity on this issue, Gaffin privately encouraged Shepard to modify his language in order to avoid misunderstanding. That Gaffin was both sympathetic and concerned is best seen in the complaint that he and others brought before the Presbytery of Philadelphia in March of 1980. Essentially, the complaint did two things. First, because the Presbytery had thus far failed to resolve the doctrinal questions Shepard had raised, the complainants insisted that the Presbytery declare that it had not found the views of Shepard out of accord with the teaching of scripture and the Westminster standards. In other words, ambiguity serving no one, since the presbytery had failed to identify a problem, they should declare fair ball, at least for now. And second, the complainants asked that the presbytery urge Shepard to exercise care in his use of traditional definitions and terminology in order to satisfy concerns for historic orthodoxy. Uh, later on, uh, he would come to see some of the things that were underneath the surface that perhaps at the time he, you know, uh, he would have uh, wanted to make uh, a clear emphasis upon. And one of them being that the importance of the covenant of life or the covenant of works and that uh, Norman Shepard had denied the uh, that doctrine. The controversy dragged on until, in the fall of 1981, the Board of Westminster discontinued Shepard's role, the question of the validity of his views remaining unresolved. Two decades later, the differences between Gaffin and Shepard on these issues were finally clarified by Shepard in his book, The Call of Grace, published in 2001. At the end of the day, Gaffin had argued that Shepard's error was in mistaking what faith does 
for what faith is. And Gaffin had also objected to Shepard's rejection of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ, where imputation had been a special emphasis of Gaffin's teacher, John Murray. Elsewhere, Gaffin found new arenas for clarifying and defending the Reformed doctrine of justification. He argued that although faith is the lone instrument of justification, that lone instrument is never alone. Around this time, he completed his book, By Faith and Not By Sight, which had begun as a series of lectures delivered first at Oak Hill College in London and then at the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church in Monroe, Louisiana, where Gaffin had debated N.T. Wright on the so-called new perspective on Paul yet another view which departs from the Reformed tradition on the definitive and vicarious nature of justification. Gaffin argues that to justify means to acquit, and that this acquittal happens by virtue of a transfer of legal status from Christ to the sinner. The believer, once under wrath, now is reckoned righteous, unblemished, and blameless on Christ's account. That righteous standing before the law that is Christ's is simply transferred by grace and through faith to the sinner. In other words, justification identifies or denotes the state that is declared to be because of Christ's finished work. These theological debates can seem overly nuanced and hardly worth the trouble and trouble there was, but Gaffin knew that the stakes were high. The question of justification cut right to the core of his mission as a churchman and as a theologian. He recognized that the Christian's hope hinges on union with Christ, and union with Christ guarantees that the believer stands justified before God. So if that definitive justification is undermined, union itself is jeopardized. So it was that in the midst of the Shepherd controversy in the late 1970s, Gaffin's work on union with Christ, particularly on the centrality of union, would begin to develop. In this emphasis on the centrality of union, again, Gaffin followed the lead of his teacher, John Murray, and he added to the mix the redemptive historical emphases of Hermann Ritterboss and others. But Gaffin's concerns were never purely theoretical. On the occasion of his inauguration as professor of New Testament in 1979, Gaffin delivered a lecture on union with Christ and suffering, later published in the Westminster Theological Journal with the title, The Usefulness of the Cross. Dr. Gaffin is bearing testimony to what he's seeing in the New Testament. Here again is Professor Waters. And really does tap into a critical vein of reform piety. Uh, you you read the reformers, you read the Puritans, you read the sermons of old Princeton, and Dr. Gaffin is sounding the very same note. And I think in God's providence, uh, that note is going to be timely in every generation. That. God's people are tempted to step aside from our call to suffer in and with Christ and in this way serve him in the world. And Dr. Gaffin, to his credit, has not let go. That is our calling. 
In The Usefulness of the Cross, Gaffin observes that in Philippians 3.10, the sequence of resurrection, suffering, and death does not read as expected. The order we expect is suffering, death, and then resurrection. But the Apostle Paul places the resurrection of Christ first. He says resurrection, then suffering, and then death. This tells us, says Gaffin, that the power of Christ's resurrection is realized just as the fellowship of his sufferings and conformity to his death. The impact, the impress of the resurrection in Paul's existence, that is in Paul's daily life, in his Christian experience, is the cross. In this unforgettable essay, Gaffin explains that Christian life is eschatological life because the new creation dawned with the resurrection of Christ. The kingdom of heaven has already dawned with Christ's resurrection. This means that we, as Christians, are already resurrected in Him. And yet, until Christ returns, the glory of the church is a matter of the exalted Christ's strength made perfect in suffering, in suffering with Christ as Christ Himself suffered. Here is Stafford Carson, Senior Director of Global Ministries and Adjunct Professor of Pastoral Theology at Westminster, was a student at the time and present at Gaffin's inaugural lecture. I, yeah, I, I, I do remember that. And I, I think when I heard the title, The Usefulness of the Cross, I thought, why is he dealing with the atonement? You know, is this going to be a, uh, a lecture on... Christ dying for people and how useful that is in securing our salvation. But then in typical Gaffin style, he moves it in a different direction, even as he explains in the opening paragraph there uh, that uh, we're going to be thinking particularly about the Christian life and then about eschatology. And here we are living in the last days and what's the nature of the Christian life uh, for current believers who live at this stage uh, in redemptive history. So suddenly it becomes uh, a very profound exegesis of uh, what it means to be a Christian who follows Christ, the crucified and risen Christ, in this particular age, um, and understanding where we are um, in uh, in terms of redemptive history. Um, I, I think that's one of the great things that, uh, that Gaffin would have done, that he, he always helped us to understand where we are uh, in terms of what has happened and what will yet happen in terms of redemptive history. Uh, and we sometimes lose sight of that. Um, and just by reminding us, you know, there's already not yet. And what, what does it mean to be united to a crucified and risen Saviour uh, right now for us. How do we handle uh, the, the challenges of our lives? He's not talking so much about persecution in the sense that we understand it, but just it, the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, so th the life of Christ being uh, manifest in us in the midst of this broken, imperfect world as we wait for the redemption of our bodies and the, the full revelation of our Savior. Stafford pastored in Northern Ireland for more than 30 years, 
So I asked him about the practical value of the usefulness of the cross and of Gaffin's redemptive historical theology of suffering. Um, and, and always that, that, that understanding, you know, is so helpful in terms of the whole of Christian ministry. Um, not only in terms of your preaching, but in terms of pastoral work. Because forever you're talking to people who are in difficult circumstances. Um, you know, you go to visit someone who's recently had a very negative diagnosis, perhaps of a terminal illness, and what's your message to them? <laughs> it's just reminding them, here's where we are. This is, this is where we're located. Uh, you know, he, he, here's where redemptive history is going. We're not there yet. We, we live in a broken world with all its problems. Uh, we experience that brokenness in all kinds of ways. But what is the word of the gospel in this situation for you as you seek to cope uh, with, your, with your illness? Is there someone who is with you? Is there someone you can look to? And is there, what can you look to beyond your current situation? Uh, and in that sense, I think Dick Gavin really enriched me and helped me for pastoral ministry. He, he maybe didn't know he was doing it at the time, but, but he gave me a, a context and a language and an understanding of the scriptures that has enabled me to minister in some way to those who are experiencing uh, life in this difficult, uh, broken world. In December of 2004, Dr. Gaffin's daughter, Liesel Gaffin Tyson, was called home to the Lord after battling cancer. She was only 36 years old. Patricia and I came back here in 2000, and Dick and Jean were living through the last days of their daughter, Liesel. And Patricia and Jean uh, were talking together and we actually uh, looked after Liesl's two children uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, she went for treatment and was in and out of hospital. Um, and I think through all that, I watched Dick and Jean handle what must have been the most painful of situations that any parent can face. Uh, as you see your child struggling with a terminal illness and you see two little ones who will be bereft of their mother. And just to say that uh, in the midst of all that heartache, Dick and Jean were exemplary just absolutely exemplary in terms of their life in the local church and in terms of the way in which they, they dealt with their personal pain and anguish. Um, but that was a privilege. Uh, and, you know, when I, when I think of, of Dick and Jean as a couple uh, in the local church, um, that's my abiding memory of them. Uh, that here, here is someone who writes about the usefulness of the cross. Here is someone who tells us about sh f having fellowship in the 
in the sufferings of Christ. And now here is someone who in his personal life experiences all that pain for himself. And what he has taught us and what he has said is perfectly illustrated in the manner of his dealing with that personal loss and suffering. Many thanks to Stafford Carson. You can read The Usefulness of the Cross in Word and Spirit, a collection of 41 of Gaffin's essays published by Westminster Seminary Press, now available at wtsbooks.com. Join us next time for Episode 3 of the Word and Spirit podcast, Epistemological Reflections on 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. This episode of Word and Spirit was based on a brief biography of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. in Word and Spirit, Selected Writings on Biblical and Systematic Theology by Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., edited by David B. Garner and Guy Prentice Waters, published by Westminster Seminary Press, and on the Reverend Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., Sancti Libri Theologicus Magnus Westmonasteriensis, by Peter A. Lilback, published in The Ordained Servant. The episode was hosted by Nathan Shannon, produced by Jimmy Atkins and Josh Curry, and engineered by Paul Quirum. This episode was a production of Westminster Media, a publishing and production ministry of Westminster Theological Seminary. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit wts.edu give to find out how you can support broadcasts like this one in service of Westminster's mission to train specialists in the Bible to proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and his global church. Thank you for listening.